This is Lost in the Groove. Where we have really awesome and meaningful conversations week after week. Things that matter to you. All right, beautiful people. We are back. Oh, we are back, baby. Anyway, so today, today is about the hate. You know uh, what? What do we call? What do we call it now? The new generation with their haters, the TikTok and the the chat to the snap. I don't. I don't know half these terms. Anyway, uh, microaggressions. Microaggression. We're going to be focusing on the hate behind psychedelic research and. A, a global problem we have with depression. So, without further ado, let us let us see what we can we can accomplish. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think uh, a good place to begin is what we were just talking about um, a few minutes ago. The the past, like where did uh, you know where did psychedelics begin? So the obvious past uh, that we're all familiar with is dates back thousands of years, um, known to be used by uh, native tribes all, all across the globe, not, not just South America or uh, the Americas in general, but everywhere. It's been used. So uh, for ceremonies, um, potentially for medicine, uh, as well as, you know, anything else that, uh, that may come up as uh, we continue to find uh, relics and continue to do uh, archaeology and see I, uh, I think to this day, we're still digging up places that are uh, for the first time being discovered, which is pretty awesome and exciting. I think the war on psychedelics comes from the industrial era, because one of the key components of the industrial boom in the late 80s, all the way upwards until now, is control. The way that companies organizations, groups, the way that they've worked is by set of rules. So when you have a society that's structured around this, over time, you start to see the cracks. And where that is, is with free research, allowing people to speak freely, be able to experiment, which for hundreds of years, thousands of years, wasn't seemed to be a problem, even by the most religious of people. Mm, I mean, I don't know about all that. I think we're talking about pre-Christianity. I'm not talking. Oh, about like uh, okay, we're not talking about a time where you know you can get crucified and stoned to death. For, but I mean, during that period of time, it's uh, like you had mentioned. There was that Soviet scare. You should probably talk about that too and share that with people. For those that don't know. That it does, uh, it does have a lot to do with the fear, then the control, uh, and then as we come to present day, it's all unraveling because people are sensing like this was all bullshit, and here we are legalizing cannabis, beginning to legalize psychedelics at least for medical use. Um. I think that is important. It is a, it is a a crucial component of our past is the Cold War. Uh it completely shifted and changed the way countries view each other. You know, because before there was always hatred. But there was hatred to a point now where you're you could wait, wipe out 30% of the human population. That was the fear. And McCarthy was a white bigot, a narcissist, and a disgusting creature that he used pure hate to hurt innocent people. You know how many Russians suffered in America while McCarthy was alive during that whole period? Thousands. And it just continued, this aggression of control... (coughs) Based on, well, we need to protect ourselves from Russia. That, that was always the excuse. Right. But, you know, going back to psychedelics, uh, we were talking about it in that conversation. You had brought up specifically how 
um, psychedelics, uh, though they were seeing some uh, some positive things, right? Like the uh, the application for addiction. Um, but then you fast forward a decade or two, uh, you have a lot of fear around how people are using it. It's getting into the wrong hands. You have Soviet Union experimenting with it. That's what you had mentioned to me. Um, uh, trying to weaponize it in some way. So like our government feared that, but at the same time, uh, I guess, you know, the, depending on what they had seen during that period of time, I think the same happened for cannabis, right? I mean, almost any drugs uh, reminds me of a, a scene out of pineapple express. Do you remember it? Yes. That scene where they, you know, the general walks in there, talks to the dude, the soldier that they've been experimenting on. And the soldier's like, fuck you. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the general walks out of that room, calls, uh, calls whomever and is like illegal. That's what this needs to be. You know, the, uh, the thought that that could have potentially happened with LSD and maybe some other psychedelics, uh, I feel like uh, would be realistic. Like seeing that, wait a minute, people don't want to work. They don't want to be part of the machine that, you know, corporate America is building, right? Productivity, ingenuity, um, you know, production of goods and services and having that money machine churn. Well, during the 60s, as these uh, people were experimenting with these drugs, what did they notice? You know, these people don't want to work. They don't want to be part of that machine. They don't believe in it. It's not for them. Um, but that, that, that could similarly ha have had an impact on how I think um, the administrations would have handled fucking the, uh, the treatment of psychedelics. I think if... <clears throat> We had more, we realized back then that we had more of the upper hand because by 1969, you know, the, the Vietnam War was at an all-time high and the war on drugs was at an all-time high. And the interesting thing is the pharmaceutical industry has always been involved. They've always been the, the okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in the nicest possible way I can put this. They're like that micropenis. You can't stand, you know, that, that like, you ever, like, okay, I'm going to help normal people understand this. When you buy <laughs> mushrooms, when you buy mushrooms, it's that, like, one in the pack that's just so disgusting, you don't want to even want to use it. They choose those types of people to represent the pharmaceutical industry. And why am I bringing this up is, it's not backed by proper research. We see this through a lot of things where... It's long-term use. That's eventually where we see how it, how it affects the person. Because they don't do long-term effects. That's not how it works. Their issue was is that there wasn't enough research on psychedelics. It was too inconcisive. It was incomplete. The problem is they weren't looking at the correct point. Cannabis, just like psychedelics, they're tools. You can't give somebody a tab of acid and say, you're cured. Hallelujah, you're cured. It doesn't work that way. It's just tools. Do so you need the therapy, the research and the program that's built around it to see what kind of therapy can you use with MDMA? With the tools you get from it, what therapy can you use to help the person use those tools? That's well the said. That's the fear, right yeah. there. You know, I'm going through. Uh, I'm going through this abstract of something provided uh, National Library of Medicine, and just kind of breaking down like what happened exactly during that period of time. I mean, it looks like they had uh, a pretty good run from the 50s to the 60s. Uh, had plenty of research, but then it was slowed to a halt. 70s and 80s government intervention uh, hampered. The research, um, despite it says, despite evidence of limited medical risks and uh, and obvious therapeutic potential, so they're saying like it was obvious there was therapeutic potential and very limited risk, medical risk. Um, 
And it looks like they continue to persistent education, advocacy, rigorous research, employing psychedelics as tools of discovery and healing. Um, incredible. I mean, all of that work, just even in those in those years, for all those um, for all those people involved through the let's say seventies and eighties, being advocates and trying to educate um, lawmakers, um, you know, they paved the way. It took shit, man. It took five decades. The crazy part, though, is we're using the research from the fifties and sixties to build on what we're building now. That's true. I mean, I'm sure, but still, right? Like they're, they're still conducting research, right? They're still, um, uh, they still have um, people who are signing up to be, uh, for lack of a better term, um, you know, test subjects. So they're at least they're gaining that kind of data for whatever that's worth. But you're right. How much more could we have learned if we didn't give up on it and continued researching? And I mean, who knows? Maybe by now we would have had something that is prescribed. I, which I, which I'm not a fan of. But yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I feel like also one very big fear, and I've seen this is when the government gets involved. It, you know, it becomes now there's a psychedelic pharmacy and it feels wrong because it's not a pill. See, this is the issue is that the government keeps <coughs> on labeling it as a drug for fucking Christ's sakes. Name one similarity between heroin and ecstasy. Name one. Can you name a similarity between the two of them? There well, I think uh, I think though I see what you're getting at. I mean, the term "drug" uh, is pretty loosely used, right? And I think maybe that's intentional, so that way they can just throw anything under that category. But a pill, a pill can't be just what a pill is. A pill. How does that make any sense? So, uh, but a pill is a drug. But you know, but if it's a vitamin, then it's a supplement. Uh huh. Right. It's not a pill anymore. It's you know, a vitamin. It's a vitamin. Yeah. But it's true, though. It's, it depends on the contents. In this case, right, heroin, MDMA, certainly not the same thing. But are they, you know, are they are they both chemicals? Um, do they both produce chemicals, right, in the body when used? The answer is still yes. So if it's if it's acting or reacting like a drug, then it's a drug. I mean, but it's I, I want to say it's pretty obvious. We're chemically driven species. So the drugs in our brain, the drugs in our body, those are still drugs. They're chemicals of, they're, they're naturally occurring chemicals in our body, um, but they're still chemicals, chemical reactions. Yeah. I was, uh, was going through uh, some of the rest of this here, right? Like we're talking about the past, um, We've seen some kind of, uh, I want to say, some kind of uh, progress in trying to materialize it into uh, a medicinal substance. It's finally kind of happening. Uh, some of the earliest time, right? Like, I think we were having a conversation about it. It looks like the earliest time were around the 1940s. I think that's uh, you had mentioned that to me. So to be exact, uh, his name was Albert Hoffman, and he was a Swiss chemist. And according to this article, he accidentally dosed himself and was amazed by the powerful psychoactive um, effects. So originally, he dosed himself too high because he didn't really know <laughs> what he was doing, and he was just amazed. And one really interesting thing that they um, – I remember I saw this experiment they would do – was withdrawing. So they would um, take patients, specifically people that suffered from like bipolar, PTSD, and they'd make them draw for the first hour on um, LSD, and then the second hour and the third. There's actually a video on YouTube you could find like this. And you could see the effects the LSD had on the person until the point where a person was drawing a person as like glass. 
shattered glass. Just in different dimensions. So, we have, I mean, it's on YouTube. Like, we have this research. But I remember what Jill said uh, last week was, so sad. Can you imagine if that didn't stop? Dude, we might be living in a lot better of a world right now. Well, I mean, you know, it's like I've mentioned before, it's the the way the metrics they're used to kind of gauge the productivity of a country is messed up. Andrew Yang talked about that really well. He truly, he truly understood the importance of happiness, I think, especially if you want a country to prosper long term. Um, so, like, that's one aspect. But, like, uh, the hardships of life, though there are many, and they vary so very much. I mean, from person to person, um, could, you know, could it have at least minimized the suffering? Sure. If we had continued research, it, it, if let's say we found, you know, we found it all useful and then we were administering by the 90s instead of uh, instead of now, 20 years after the 30 years after the fact. That's it would have made a huge difference. But, you know, statistically here, like I was curious about um, just what are some of the, the stats on on antidepressant use just in the last you know, few years, it's gone up. It's gone up. Uh, I want to say some average percent, like 14, 15%, um, just in the last three years, that's still an increase, but well, people are using them. Well, there's a statistic actually where 23% of women in their forties and fifties take antidepressants, a higher percentage than any other group. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, for women, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and specifically the age, like um like just looking over some of this data here. You know why? You know, 45 yeah, I mean uh and and it's 65 and over at 18%. Uh but it's you know, I also can understand, you know, the older you're getting, depending on how you've lived your life, you're you're finding more time to reflect and um that depression could be very, very difficult as people kind I, of. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally feel that older women are not treated well at all. There's this constant social norm where they have to look younger. They're getting old. The constant reminder of their husband co constantly rubbing it in. And I've seen this many times. Well, those are horrible people. But th this is a society we live in. It's like once a woman reaches 40, you can't have a baby. You can't have sex anymore because you're ugly. I mean, it's just bizarre. And the simple answer is, you're fucking 40. Who cares? You're young. I, you got life. Uh, you're 50. You got life. I think, that, I think that's very circumstantial based on just the person. Maybe that's like a But think about how like society – see, look how society treats – women in their 40s and 50s. Just look at all the the products and the companies and the advertisement. That's not a that's not a treatment. I mean, I think uh, I understand what you're getting at. I think it's um uh, but I think you kind of might be miswording it there. So um, if you're thinking about how companies are targeting women at these ages like yes, they are targeting them. And um but are they guilty? Um, 100% for the way it makes women feel in those ages. No one has control over how you feel. But being that we're also very emotional creatures, um, the marketing works well. Like, it's not a treatment. We're not treating them poorly, it's, right? Like, it's, the, it's the same thing where you have the hidden message. So, like, a great example is you can always put a hidden message in, like, a, a film, you know, it's behind. Like, you can hear it, but you can hear it. Right. The reality is that pharmaceutical companies use advertisement companies to be able to get people on their products. I'm going to be one of those people that are going to say this. I feel that antidepressants is an, art, an advertisement stunt. It's a way 
for pharmaceutical industries to make a fortune of money, just like they do off of diabetic, diabetic medication. Because guess what? When these people take antidepressants for long periods of time, what happens to these people? One of the highest rates is diabetes because they gain weight by taking these antidepressants. So they make money. That is money. genius. So They're they make so money. fucking evil. They're so fucking evil. Exactly. They make money <laughs> on the antidepressants, and then they get you on the diabetic medication years later. <laughs> they're fucking you both ways. They're, I mean, they're fucking you hard on the first one because it's leading to the second one. Um, well, that's how America works, folks. For all of you wondering, it's always worked this way, and the politicians just uh, – just, you know, sweep it under the rug. Um, best best example, though, it's maybe not closely related to this. This is like how um, how the Purdue Pharma was hit with, I don't know, two or three billion dollar fine. I could be off with the number, but that's fractions of what they made in 20 years in profits. Fractions. So you want to hear something funny? I was watching a Purdue uh, commercial and they're like, we love our earth. <laughs> and we're he here to protect our farmers and be environmentally friendly to our land. And I was just like, ah, 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 you gotta be kidding me. Ah, ah, Purdue, Purdue cares about our planet. Oh, please. Yeah, Coca-Cola Coca -Cola cares more about our planet than Purdue does. Just <laughs> that in perspective. <laughs> well, I mean, still like, um, you would wonder, like, what? Well, okay, how does Purdue? Uh, I mean, uh, like, how how would they affect, let's say, the Earth? Right? I mean, um, a lot of times, these pharmaceutical companies need access to like rich land of resources for plants, for study, for extraction. I mean, for there's a good example. There's a, a cosmetics company, I think, right on the coast. Uh, you know, if you've ever, when you were here in LA, whenever you would drive to the coast, right on uh, PCH, you'd see this giant, you know, giant company um, at the top of the hill. It's a cosmetics company. And the reason why they chose that location was because it gave them uh, incredible access to those mountains and everything that grows there. So like, maybe that's what they're trying to say is like, being that they do have to tap into the land to produce certain drugs um, that they want to be more responsible, but still. I mean, that's still kind of far, you know, far fetched. But again, they care about they care about profits. But again, going back to the way to cure, and, and this has been proven throughout history. You need tools. The way that Romans were able to carve out of marble, they had tools. They figured out a way of creating tools to help them create these gorgeous sculptures. And it's the same thing when you're dealing with depression, PTSD, and anxiety. These are all things you don't have the tools to deal with them. You don't have the tools. So the way I look at it like this is, you could throw all the pills you want in it. Just throw all the pills. But what do you do once you swallow it? You stand there like a goddamn duck and just quack? What do you do? <coughs> <laughs> exactly. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the problem that people have been seeing, right? I mean, I've I've taken antidepressants when I was a young teenager, and it worked for a little while. But then, um, you know, some of the other traumas just weren't necessarily taken care of, and it became evident too. Uh, early twenties, mid twenties, um, early thirties. Uh, at every stage of life, there's all these different things that are thrown at you. Uh, and again, most certainly, just like what we're seeing in uh, the population of uh, over 40, they're taking antidepressants and are dealing with, I mean, at every stage of life, there's different things that you're uh, trying to cope with. I think you're absolutely right when you say the tools are very necessary. That's what I think I gained with psychedelics. I gained the tools to be, uh, to work on being a better person, at least in the vision that I think I have my own morals. I stick to them. Um, I know, uh, to, uh, I know deep down in my heart, I know what's right and wrong. So it's um, living to those standards is uh, what's important to me um, and not to anyone else's, but that's, that's all, you know, all these lessons will help. They're, all the tools will help in the next stages of life where 
you know, new emotional problems occur or new psychological pressures or uh, whatever it may be that's uh, that's thrown at you. You're building a fortitude to deal with it um, accordingly in a um, in a manner that's calm and collected and effective. So I think that's absolutely true that um, you can take the medications, but it's never going to solve the problem. If you don't know why you're depressed, maybe that's where to begin. If you start naming, you know, half a dozen things or a dozen things that are all wrong in your life, it's time to make a change. I mean, account, you know, one of the things, one of the main things that came up in my trips, in my, in my journeys with psychedelics, it's uh, accountability. You must, you must hold yourself accountable. No one else is going to. And as you see, the world around you is ready to take advantage of that. Whether you're a woman over 50 being bombarded with uh, cosmetics and, uh, and how that makes you feel. I mean, all of these things are basically engineered to, to play on our emotions if we let it. I, uh, I, w- I, will, I will do this. There's a, um, there's a John Lennon quote. And everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. <laughs> I like it. So, truth be told, <clears throat> I don't hate the pharmaceutical industry. I think there are some really incredible things that come out of the pharmaceutical industry. But the sure. way that the way that we need to view the antidepressant crisis is not at the pill. But it's to start with the hate. It's to figure out, okay, this is not working. There's a better way of dealing with PTSD. There's a better way of dealing with anxiety. There's a better way of dealing with depression. And it's not long term. It's short term. Because these things are supposed to be temporary. Like you mentioned, every through every single cycle you go through life, you go through different obstacles and struggles. So how could you take something for long term a period to cure it? Yeah, I mean, it's, but it's a short term thing. But you're absolutely. It's not. It's not. It was never meant to be a cure. Like, I don't think anybody ever asked that, right? Like, you know, somebody goes in to, to see their doctor and like, hey, you know, I feel this way. They're like, all right, we'll prescribe you something. The, there's never the question of like, is this going to cure it? They just like, if it works, then I'm happy. Right. Or I'm satisfied that it's working, but the thought never occurs to somebody to say, well, is it going to cure me? If the answer is no, like, what is it going to do then long term? How long should I be taking this? If it's working, you know, should I take it every other day? I mean, people don't ask. I mean, maybe maybe some do, but I think the vast majority may not, especially young people um, as uh, as they get in, you know, their their parents are in there they may not understand fully what uh, they're agreeing to if they want to give this to their 14 year old son or daughter or whatever um you know bottom line is it is profitable but um it's been going south i mean the antidepressant market has been losing steam for like a decade now they've made less money uh in the last few years than they did at their peak in like you know mid 2000s so I think people I think what happened in the late 50s is starting to happen again now. You know, so many people are standing up and saying we're not doing this anymore. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, I'm in Florida right now and you know, um it's called the No Gay Act. No say no gay. I don't know. I can't even remember what the fuck is. Say no gay. Yeah, I've I've heard about it. I'm like, this sounds ridiculous. What is this? What is it about? Because so in short, basically, the law in Florida is if that a child says in school anything in particular about them being gay, they immediately have to call up the parent and tell them. It's a law. So then, then what happens? You confuse a little child that doesn't know what the fuck is going on. 
So like your child says they're gay and then the teacher pulls them aside, calls the principal, principal calls the parents, notifies the parents, the parents come, they're like, oh, you're gay. Like, okay, what do you do with that? But why is it, first of all, it's a family issue, okay? It's none of the school's business, that's number one. Number two, yeah. the other thing is you want to support your child. You don't want to be one of those parents that squish your child and just shove a bunch of crap down their throat. You know, you can feel gay at nine years old. It doesn't mean that you have to get your child, you know, injected with serums at 12 years old. You can kind of walk them through, figure out different ways of getting them through whatever puberty or get through teenage, whatever the case may be. Right, because it can turn out that they may not be, right? Right. They become 16, 18, they're like, oh, turns out I'm not, you know? You don't, you don't know, but kids kids have a lot to, you know, with growth and everything. It's Patience is best rather than jumping to conclusions. This is a crazy law, though. Florida is always fucking nuts with the shit that they do. It's, um, I don't know. I don't know how this is supposed to help anybody, really. What's really funny, actually, is Florida is one of the states that's doing MDMA research. And I live 15 miles away from it. You should I sign found up, this, man. I found out. Well, actually, they closed uh, two years ago. But um, ah, yeah. say you should sign up and get get paid to get treated. Hey, amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's like leech off the system. You know, fifteen hundred dollars for you know two months. Oof, oof. That's nice. Plus, you get high for free. I mean, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I bring my weed then? It's I'll it's a nicely. It's a tough situation to be in for any society, but like it's been it's been ongoing. It's been dragging out, and you know these things take time. I mean, a lot of time. I feel like that's an understatement. It's just can take decades and decades as. Things shift and perceptions change, and people make uh, substantial uh, uh, changes in how they think and how they feel. Their, their, maybe their gonna, acceptance. But are we going to make the same mistake we we made in 1969? How so? <coughs> we gave in. Gave to what? Gave into the system. Oh, like, and then, well, people were easier to control, right? I mean, yeah, they said, you know what? Fine, we'll listen to you. And they did. I mean, I mean, sure, there were those massive riots at the time, and um, and, and they definitely caused a ruckus. But I mean, the way information moves now, it's, I don't think they'd have the same uh, ability to, to manipulate. I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, look at C19. Uh, they might. It might, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm probably totally wrong thinking that they wouldn't be able to. So would we give in? I, I mean, I don't know. I think um, I think governments are leaning in. Look at what's happening with cannabis. I mean, uh, I just heard Thailand's giving away a million plants to their residents to grow weed. Um, uh, what is it? London. London's uh, Department of like uh, Drug Enforcement is considering legalizing weed. Which is insane because England is like this old, yeah, tiny monarch, and they're like, "Ooh, weed! How <laughs> could you dare smoke it?" Ah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, pass the blunt, Martha. Uh, uh, Margaret, <laughs> bring over the dueling. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I can't. Oh goddamn royal family! Pass it here. Oh. But I mean, you know, so, there's a rule. Puff, puff, pass. Jesus, fucking. I use. It's just crazy because people are starting to wake up, and starting to see the you know the actual truth. I mean, it's just so heartbreaking because there's so much we could have done. To save so many lives. You know, like, I, I've been, like, reading also with veteran services. They've been begging for the psychedelic research and all of it to come. Been begging for years. 
because they can't handle it. You know how many veterans are so they're so fucked up in the head? They're they're damaged. Well, you know why, right? Of course yeah, I know. Well, why. I mean you No, you know why they're being neglected, right? Because yeah, who gives a shit about a man that fought for his country and almost died? So his wife would have to bury him. With so, their two children watching. You nailed it on the head, man. They just don't care. That's the bottom line. They just don't care. Otherwise, they would have done some, something for them long ago. There would have been, I mean, because but there's no money. This is what they always complain about. There's not enough funding. Like, how could you do this to these people, you know, to go and fight the random wars and battles for whatever corporate interests, or whatever national interests. Um, but then when they come back wounded and broken, um, you, you have nothing left. There's no resources or they're very limited. Yeah, only, only, private, private, only private organizations have helped out veterans. Private. There must be a tax incentive to do so. Um, I'm just being a jerk. It's probably not true. <laughs> but seriously, though, man, I mean, um, it's, it's got awful. But they just they don't care. I mean, the same goes for, let's say, the people of 9-11. All those people, the firefighters, a lot Cancer. of them. Yeah, a lot of them ended up sick. I mean, um, I, I give it to Jon Stewart, man. He's been at it for, I don't know, over a decade now, I think, fighting for them, going to Congress, fucking, you know, letting them have it. Uh, like how, you know, how is it you guys don't have any funding for these people? Like they, you know, these firefighters were running into these buildings that were smashed and collapsing to save people. So just to give you a, a kind of an idea, yes, they're not, uh, they're not exactly the same. We have people of war, but then we have people of this horrible thing that happened in 2001, but, um, in both circumstances, uh, the people that uh, needed the most help after they've put up um, their lives, they put their lives at risk for us, there's nothing. They do nothing for them. No, I mean, you look at also cancer patients, and you see, I mean, there's a fentanyl addiction. and It's just, it's just so mind-boggling that they put so much research government organizations they put so much research research in all of these things heroin fentanyl all of these horrible things that they put fucking research into but they don't release any of it because why should they well i mean we're, we're doing our research but <laughs> where is it yeah, why can't we see any of it? Because it's proprietary. That's why. You know, like, that's the whole incentive behind medicine. That's that's also why uh, any type of, um, I want to say, pharmaceutical regimen that your doctor puts you on um, isn't always the best option for you. And you should probably ask more questions just to be safe. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, it's the name it's the business model that's how it works i didn't know uh but what when you said people taking antidepressants over 40 are also ending up with diabetes i'm just like wow of course they would and it, it it's kind of it's kind of mind-boggling that we live in a world where we have to worry about ourselves getting diabetes and our pets getting diabetes. Okay? We have, and I feel like a lot of people have stopped, we have fed into the system so much that we've allowed it to control us. So the simple answer is, I'm going to say this, I don't care what anybody has to say to me. The simple answer is, if you're 75... You do not need to have diabetes. You can walk like everybody else. If you got two legs, then they're working. You can be a part of society like everybody else. 
You don't have to be a part of that social norm that's telling you you need these things because your doctor prescribed them to you. A lot of things, a lot of medications these older people get, there are ways of combating them. They change the, their lifestyle. But yeah. yeah, but but that's it's too hard to do, man. That's because also why... <laughs> because they start, at, they start them at young. They make sure that they get them lazy and motionless and moveless at such a young age that by the time they get older, they can't move. It's genius. I, 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 it is genius, but I, but I also like, you know, to counter that, because I, I feel like it's absolutely true. Doctors have been saying for years, you know, and they give up because they're like, nobody listens. We gave you our professional opinion. Like, you know, my doctor, he's like, you got to change the way you eat. No more fatty foods at all. You have unusually high cholesterol. And if you don't change, we'll have to put you on medication. So he already warned me in advance. He told me he could have just put me on the medication. Um, not every doctor is going to be that way, but I feel like they're people too. As they face this situation, they're talking to their patients. They're like, fuck, no one will change. They don't want, nobody wants to. They're too lazy to, you know, their behaviors and, and their comforts uh, day in and day out are so difficult to, to stop or to change. Um, even if it meant that their health would improve. So I feel like even the doctors in the, in, in that position kind of feel like whatever, uh, I'll just prescribe it. I'm going to make money off of it anyways. Like they don't, they don't listen to me. So, but like, but like you mentioned, there are those doctors and there's are those people in the medical industry that want to make a change. And those people are the ones that start private organizations. They start nonprofits. I mean, think about all the research that's being done been done by medical professionals that said you know what we're not doing this anymore i don't care i mean i made i made my million dollars i'm moving on i'm out of this yeah, i wish and, that were enough man but it ain't but it should be told these people have a lot of money and they they make a turn they have and they've paved a path that allows us to continue what should have been continued decades ago thinking that's the reason why i hate nonprofits, and i think about it i you know i hate the very like business model because it's you're just panhandling for money you know people have to like give you money so you can try to do the things that you want to do and it's uh though it's worked for a while i mean generally where do we see the, those very large donations come from Special interests, very powerful, wealthy people, you know. It depends. It depends on the nonprofits. So sometimes you have local nonprofits, uh, you know, helping out in the community, help cleaning up the streets. Right. Those I are... feel bad for those. <laughs> Why? Because because uh, because they had you know they have it really hard. Like they're very small, and getting enough donations to like actually survive. Um, to run the organization, but to also pay their own bills. It's like, you know what the uh, the maximum salary is for uh, the CEO of a nonprofit, right? They can't they can't get a single penny more. I think I think it was like seventy or seventy five grand. I could be wrong, something like that. It's still a lot of money. Depends on where you live, and that depends if you're pulling in, you know, five hundred thousand and donations a year where you can afford to pay yourself that i mean i know organizations in i was a part of a nonprofit organization uh for people who left um the community i grew up in and they've done tremendous work good you know i mean i've kept in touch with some people still in new york uh i feel that these nonprofits are very helpful because Guess what happens to people like me that leave cult communities? We're depressed. We're anxious. We have very bad PTSD. Most of us. So where do we turn to? A lot of us get hooked on drugs, like antidepressants, sleeping pills, because we can't function. We go to therapy for years and years and years. You've called it a cult before, and I just thought you were joking. No, it, it is an actual cult. 
So what cult was it? The Jewish cult. It's uh Does it have a name? Is it does it have a specific Yeah, it's called the Muncie Community in Borough Park. It's legit a cult? Yeah, like a legit cult. That's where you were living before, right? Yeah. Before you so you so, finally so you finally escaped. Yeah. I mean, you could leave, but no one will have anything to do with you if you leave the community. Ah. Well, of course, but that's it's understandable. You know, here in LA, people don't give a fuck if you leave. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what, where you live in that. No, community. no, I know they're like, oh, <laughs> thank God he's left. Oh. Yeah. Hopefully, we get better neighbors this time. Yeah, make sure they got a Bentley in their driveway. Ooh. Well. Listen, yeah. I don't want to go to their bathroom and see all their heroin vials. But anyway, uh, getting back to antidepressants. <laughs> or their antidepressant bottles. Oh, yeah. Just injecting that, that in their hot tubs. Yep. Maybe snorting it, you know, making it. Yeah. 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 I've heard yeah. that before. I've oh, heard yeah. people do that. Oh, yeah. Big time. You know, <laughs> like, hey, you feel anxious? Just snort a Xanax. Yeah. There you go. It's like, what do you mean? It's a, you're supposed to just ingest it. <laughs> yeah, sponsored by the Republican Party of North Carolina. But um, <laughs> so one thing I I did notice <clears throat> when looking at you know anxiety medication and antidepressants and all of this, they go around mental conditions, right? And one thing that was interesting I was reading in this is that in your brain you have like neurotransmitters. So in right. short, you have two doors, and you need the right keys to go in each one to unlock it. So what happens sometimes is where you, either your brain has the wrong key or it's just not working. So the medication is basically changing so you're able to figure out which key would work to open up those doors. So the way I look at it is... Why aren't you able to open those doors? Is it possibly because the trauma for those events, you can't mentally handle it? So your brain knows if those doors open, it might cause massive for, damage? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is absolutely true, though. There's, you know, your your subconscious compartmentalizes things. And it's like, yeah. This should never come up again. Let's just bury this somewhere but, on the like on the deep hard drive, you know that <laughs> that never gets accessed on the floppy you know? on the floppy disk. Right, burn yeah. that shit after. <laughs> but absolutely, man, um, that's why I can't. You know those neurotransmitters, even if they try to strike um, to certain parts of the brain, maybe it just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't uh, register, but. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. This is, I mean, you know, there's a neuroscience now that we're getting into. Yeah. I mean, I, I took I took antidepressants for one week. How did you feel? It made me crazy, and I actually got into a car accident the following week. I mean, I thought, thought it would have made you a new person, man. I'm a it whole made, new person. It made me insane. I mean, I remember my manager pulled me over, and he's like, go outside for half an hour. Don't come inside. He literally locked the door. Where That's was this? This is when I worked for my brother in California. Oh. It was it made me it made me crazy. And the reason was is and I've realized this over time is that my brain was saying, Stop compressing it. If you compress it anymore, it's gonna destroy you. Got it. That makes sense too. That's an interesting it's an interesting point of view. It's like kind of imagine an overflowing pot. How long can you keep the lid before it just starts imploding all over the place? Uh, I mean, you can apply pressure, but even through that pressure, it still seeps out. That's kind Correct. of that's kind of what ends up happening to anybody, let's say, going through a midlife crisis. Um, it's like things they've never addressed that they just buried and buried and went through life and uh, only you know continue to grow older, but eventually, like the the pressure um, weakens in a sense. It weakens because you can't keep it suppressed uh, and you can't keep adding to it either if you are. 
um, the, the meltdown is likely to occur sooner. You know, that boiling pot you know, is, the, is a really good an analogy, I think, to how it would occur or how we would feel. Yeah. I mean, if you take <laughs> the war on drugs and you look at the medications today with our mental fears and traumas, the uh. similarity comes back where... You can't hold the lid on the pot for too long. That's one thing that Nixon... He didn't... Um... <laughs> By the way, there's a whole thing behind this. Like, whenever you say a name, you give it praise. So whenever somebody's really bad, you're supposed to say it in disgust. This is for all you listeners. This is like a very spiritual thing. So if you, like, spit or in disgust, it doesn't give praise to the name. That's my analogy. Anyway, uh, but with that, you can see that you control has a limit. You can't always control a situation. You can for a certain period, but like I said earlier, it's not permanent. It's not long term. It's short term. There's so much you can compress. Moral of the story. Yes. Learn to decompress. Not compress. Yes, decompress. Find the tools, whatever that may be. Might find it on Amazon. I don't know. Yeah, just ask your Alexa in one of your 12 bedrooms. She'll tell you. <laughs> tell you like hey dave you need <clears throat> yeah, xanax you need, or something <laughs> yeah yeah you you need the the triple pack it's only you know 48, what 48.99 <laughs> <laughs> what i think that might that might actually become a reality at some point man because uh amazon did get into the uh the pharmaceutical game they did so i think that is a possibility at some point you could be like alexa i'm feeling very anxious you know i don't know what's What's going on? I really need something right now. Yeah, don't call, bother and, calling my doctor. Just just send it to me. Well, what if it's all connected? What if there's a, a because again they're in the pharmaceutical game, so now they have medical data on their customers too. Do you want something interesting? There was a release paper that was done by scientists that said in the near future it's possible that AI would replace doctors, physicians. I mean, only if they're right. If they're <laughs> Only if they're right most of the time. I mean, there's a there's a doctor I'm getting on to the uh, to my uh, to my podcast tomorrow um, in pain management, and um, he's different, that's for sure. But I bring it up because, uh, like, his, his point of view is, you know, most doctors misdiagnose because they approach uh, they approach it with. Um, I don't know, a two-dimensional kind of view of, of like a situation with a patient. I mean, that's kind of like a brief idea of kind of where his thoughts are. Because there's this idea with, um, unfortunately with doctors, more patients mean more money. Sure, they man. spend less time with a patient. For like example, I go to a doctor. I'm there for like 35 minutes to 45 minutes. That's a long time. And the reason is, is because she talks to me. She, Maybe tells she likes me, like, you, man. No, because she actually, <laughs> she actually cares. Like they've gone over with me, like with my medication. I take one pill. Um, and kind of explain how to, you know, how we can take care of this before medication comes in. Like you were discussing earlier. There, there are doctors like that. But I don't think you. I I don't think it's common. I think one of the biggest problems is that they want their Aston Martin, they want I mean, their twelve bedroom mansion. So do I, man. I mean, Florida has some big houses, man. Listen, I mean, so if you could stuff four hundred patients in a week, yola, let's do it. I mean, gosh, 
shit ton of money. But I mean, everybody's got to make money, right? I mean, you know, being that I've been self-employed for so long, like the more I examine business models, right? I mean, I'm constantly learning and evolving. And what I see is that there is no there is no business model that isn't necessarily uh, absolutely clean. They all have motives. Like Gotham. <clears throat> the profit motive is always the underlying driving force. So whatever they choose to do, service, product, I mean, um, they, they serve their purposes and they serve somebody depending on the demand and desire and whatever problems it solves. But um, that's the bottom line. So I can't be mad at doctors. Um, we should have listened to our parents, dude, when they're like, you should become doctor. Become doctor. You know, become doctor. Make, make, make money. Lots of money. Uh, I mean, they knew. <laughs> Somehow they knew. I mean, look, I'm, I'm Jewish and I didn't become a lawyer. Half my people hate my guts. What can I do? Why? Because he didn't become a lawyer? Yeah. I mean, I hate, I really don't like lawyers until I really need them. Listen, but even, listen, but even then. Li listen, as a Jew, you want a Jewish lawyer. <laughs> they, they will fuck the mama the whole case for you. <laughs> they will make sure you win. God bless Jewish lawyers. God bless all of you. Anyway. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on how much you're paying them, right? Yeah, well. Because if you're paying them a lot of money, they're like, yes, we want this money and we want our customer to be free. That's the Jewish life for me. But <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's kind of strange because this is, a, this is a topic where it's not a topic. It's it's a societal, societal issue. I mean, it's an issue that we can do better. We just refuse not to. And we have the resources to make our lives better. But again, we refuse to use them because they don't benefit the businesses. They don't benefit the corporations. Absolutely true. They do They do not. And um, it's really up to people how they want to kind of spend their money. But what we have seen from long-term behavior um, and this is very long term. I'm not talking about 24 months. I'm talking about decades and decades and even longer compiled data of people's behavior. It's simple. Um, people want things fast. They want them cheap. Um, they want their problems solved immediately. Instant gratification. The more instant you make it, the, the more they're addicted to it and the more they use it. Um, and again and again, and then as you look at all the business models that surround that very idea, you see that um, they pop up everywhere. Everyone wants a piece of that uh, that pie of serving you instant gratification with whatever it may be. I, I mean, we we all take advantage of it. You know, we all use them because we need to. <coughs> Sometimes it just takes. A simple step. The one thing you can always learn from, I'm going to leave off with this. It's not reaching the bigger steps that matter. What matters is that the small steps you take. Because we're, we're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. And we can't, realistically, we can't all be 100% eco-friendly. Okay? I try. I try to be more you know, natural and try to turn to more medicinal um, healing. But sometimes I'll turn to more pharmaceutical. We all have flaws. And that's kind of the beauty of us as people. And I have a very strong belief about this, where if you look at people that are famous, whether celebrities, you know, big people, nonprofits, scientists, whatever the case may be, don't look at their class. Look at what they've accomplished and what they've given to you. What kind of tools have they given to you? And again, I'm going to go back to this. 
No, there's no such thing as a cure that gives you instant gratification. You first got to get the tools and work at it. The name of the game. Moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think we've had a pretty good hour, and I hope uh, I hope many people find some value here with uh, with everything we've shared. And uh, yes, the near future. Hopefully, I'm still alive. Who knows? We'll find out. Psychedelic right. revolution. Yes. See you next week. I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? All right. Bye. We have reached the end. Well, not really. It's just the end of the podcast. We really appreciate your support, listening, and our guests that come on that share their incredible stories. Be sure to check out our description box. We have social links where you can find us all over the place. And also our other podcast, Jam Bam with Mike and Dave. So here's to next week on Lost in the Groove.